Today's reading can be found on page 164 of the Pew Bibles. It's Numbers. And we're starting to read at verse 1, chapter 25. So that's page 164. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in the worshipping of Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinus, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Zalu, leader of the Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zer, a tribal, creek, sorry, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Pure and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peel. This is the word of the Lord. Please just stick your finger there in numbers. And we've got a second reading today. So, uh, so hold there in numbers, uh, because we will be coming back to that. Uh, but also, if you can flick forward to uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, can be found on page 1,151. 1,151, 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. And I'm beginning to read from verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank 
from that spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So if you can uh, just mark that 1 Corinthians passage, we will be coming back to that a little bit later, but uh, flick back to Numbers. We're nearly there, we're nearly through it. But uh, it wouldn't be be this series, would it, unless there was one last sting in the tail. And uh, and here it is, um, the last uh, sting of the tail from, from Numbers. Um, what can only be described as a gruesome passage and uh, certainly a a difficult one to tackle but we'll we'll do our best and we'll see what we come up with well last week was the start of this story and this is the continuation of the story that we had last week and last week we saw how Balak the king of Moab was unable to curse the people of God And we saw that that was due to the fact that in Genesis chapter 12, when God started his journey with the people of Israel, God made a promise to that people that they would be blessed. And he also promised that people that anyone who tried to curse them would end up being cursed themselves. But whoever tried to bless them would be blessed themselves. And what we saw last week was it was impossible for anything to come against the blessing of God. No external influence could undo the blessing of God. God was more powerful than anything else, and so his blessing stood regardless of what came against it. And although Balak was unable to get Balaam to curse the people of God directly, we find out uh, that Balaam does actually advise Balak on how the people of God may be cursed. We find that out a little bit later in Numbers. In Numbers uh, 31, 16, right, before, uh, or right after Balaam gets killed, um, we find out that Balaam advised Balak on how he might put a curse upon the people of God. In fact, it's not him putting a curse on the people of God that's the secret because no one out from outside could curse the people of God. The only way the people of God could be cursed was for them to remove themselves from God's blessing. The only way they could be cursed was if they put the curse upon themselves. And that's the advice that Balaam gives to Balak. And it's the advice we see played out in these verses. 
that the, uh, the, the women of, um, of uh, Moab, uh, Moab, the Moabite women, go out and entice the Israelite men. It's essentially what the story tells us. And they, uh, they, they are sexually immoral. And they bring themselves out from underneath God's blessing. They bring the curse upon themselves. You see, we've seen time and time again throughout this series, as we've looked at the people of Israel and their journey through Numbers, that the people of Israel continually focus on what they lack or what they desire, rather than what God has provided for them. They continue to look to what they lack or what they desire rather than look to what God has provided for them. Time and time again, they give in to their basic needs or desires and give no regard to what God has done. And we've seen it time and again in just a few uh, snapshots as we've gone through. We saw uh, that they um, were complaining about that they had nothing to eat but the manna. We read about that in chapter 11. And there was the incident with the quail, you'll remember. Uh, not trusting in God to enter the land, uh, not trusting that when God said they could achieve success in the land, they wanted to go their own way, wanted to head back to Egypt, even in chapter 14. Not trusting in God's appointed leader in chapter 16, complaining about having no water in chapter 20. And these are just snapshots, and we've seen many more instances when the people of God have grumbled. And remember what they say. They said, weren't we better off in Egypt? Let's go back to Egypt. Essentially what they were saying is, God, we were better off without you. Even though that was a clear lie, because in Egypt they were slaves. They don't recognise the blessing that God has poured on them, and they only focus on their need or their desire. Most of the time it's food that they're grumbling about, but here the problem is that they've stopped grumbling about food, maybe because the food's fine at the moment, and they've put their minds on something else entirely. And let's face it, the temptations of people have not changed from then until now. When all is said and done, the temptations we face as people are very simple. Food, power, wealth, and sex. Time and time again, when we fall into temptation, it is because we're tempted by these things. And here the people have put sex above their relationship with God. But what is worse, and what is so much worse, is that their acts of sexual immorality have led them not only to depart from God, not only to say we were better off without you, God, or even to forget about God altogether, but they have gone as far as worshipping other gods. They are cheating on God. And their sexual immorality has led them into worshipping other gods. And the response uh, from God and from those who are faithful to him is swift. And quite honestly, you would not be wrong to describe it as brutal. Swift and brutal. And it's such a strong reaction that it makes extremely uncomfortable reading. 
And I think if, if any of us read this and our hearts aren't put in a very difficult place, if, if, if we don't struggle with what we read here, I don't think we've read it close enough. Because there is some swift and brutal justice from God. And in fact, this incident and, and several others like it through Numbers is, is the reason why uh, we want to have that extra session that I spoke about last week. Remember, I spoke that we want to put an extra session probably on the 27th of November. It, it will be in the notice sheet probably next week, uh, the exact t- time and date. An extra session just for an hour where we can meet together in the afternoon of that Sunday, probably here in the church, and just raise some of those questions. Not necessarily to find complete answers for those questions, but maybe start on that journey in understanding how we can reconcile what God is like here in the Old Testament and what we know God is like now and what we see in the New Testament, that loving God who forgives. Yet in the Old Testament, he seems to be all about judgment. How can we reconcile those two? Well, do come along to that session. We will... will try and delve into that a little more deeply and we'll see if we can share some wisdom together. We don't have time to open all that now, but what we do have time to is, is firstly look at what we have here and to acknowledge, acknowledge that what has happened here is something that God clearly feels very strongly about. Sexual immorality, which has led them to worship other gods, is something which has really, really crossed a line with God. And what happens? What happens when you are the blessed people of God who has been uh, showered in his love and his blessings? And then you turn away from him and worship another God, a false God when you cheat on, uh, on the sovereign Lord with another God, well, don't be surprised at his response. We occasionally hear stories, don't we? And it's generally women uh, in the stories. Um, it's just the way it seems to be. And maybe it's because it's the husbands who, uh, who are often the ones who cheat. Um, but we hear women who have been cheated on by their husbands. And some of the responses that, uh, that we sometimes see in the newspapers of, uh, or even in the you know, headlines or magazines or whatever it is of women who have taken revenge on their cheating husbands. And perhaps sometimes even those women have gone as far to do something which is illegal. But we understand, don't we? When we read those stories, we're never really on the side of the husband, even though dreadful things have happened to him. Because actually that woman has been damaged, hurt, cheated on. We understand where her reaction comes from. And perhaps something that will help us just to understand God's reaction here is to think of it in those terms. God has been cheated on. And his response is extreme, but actually it is righteous as well. Whatever else it is, it has to be righteous because it's God. But here his people have cheated on him. The real encouragement for this passage, though, is that actually um, we don't have to just try and understand it on our own. The fact that Paul has uh, written about it in 1 Corinthians, given us some some lever, some some way to to look at it, to understand it. 
Paul is, is a greater theologian than I will ever be, so, so let's borrow his wisdom, shall we, um, as we look forward to, uh, to, to 1 Corinthians. Now, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, we've heard it before in this series, because what Paul's doing when he's, when he's uh, writing to the Corinthians here is he's talking about the journey of the people of Israel through the desert, uh, that journey that we've read about in Numbers, and he refers back to it. And he actually refers back to this very incident, and you'll see it there in um, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. There is some slight discrepancy in the numbers. Here Paul talks about 23,000. In, in numbers, it's 24,000. It is the same event they're talking about. Um, it's just that uh, the, the, the way they've counted may be slightly different. So uh, in Numbers, you'll remember, uh, Moses and the leaders put to death those who had engaged in the uh, sexual morality, and then there was the plague where 23,000 died. So it's likely that Moses was counting the, those who had been put to death and those who died in the plague together to make up the 24,000. And here, Paul is simply counting uh, the 23,000 who died in the plague. Uh, but it is the same event they're talking about. And I often think that um, when looking at the, the letters of Paul, the one that resonates most soundly with the church today is his letters to the Corinthians. I think the Corinthian church and the troubles it faced are very similar to the, face, uh, to the troubles and the uh, struggles and the difficulties that we face now in the church, particularly in the church in the West and particularly in the UK. And so what Paul has written in Corinthians is very valid for, what we, uh, for us today. It's very important. And, and we can... We can draw some of the same parallels and some of the same messages. So what does Paul have to say about this incident? And how does he uh, talk about it in, in, in response to us today? Well, he says these things that happened in Numbers, the things that we've read about today and things that we've been looking at over uh, this series, verse 11, he said these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. They're given as warnings and examples. That's how we're to read them, as, uh, as Paul says. So when we hear that uh, 20, 24,000 are killed in numbers, we read that as a warning. A warning of how we are to live in response to God's blessings poured out on us. In fact, a warning of how not to live in response to God's blessings poured out on us. And then the beginning of verse uh, 12, sorry, uh, the, the, um, verse 12 itself um, is, is then key in, in to, to moving us on because Paul then puts out a further warning. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, Paul extends this warning, not just to those who are facing the temptation of these things, but to the, the, the warning to those of us who think we're standing firm against that temptation. Even if you think there is no way that you will fall into that same trap, that, that trap of sexual immorality, or into any other of those temptations that have come out through Numbers... Even if you think you are standing firm and there is no way that you will fall. Well, Paul warns us. Paul warns us. 
Even if you're think, you think you're standing firm, be careful, because you may fall. And why? Well, because he goes on to say, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. No temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. And women, I'm afraid that's just uh, very, not very inclusive language. You're involved in this too. That the temptations that faced the people of Israel were temptations that were common to people. They didn't face some bigger temptation, some different temptation. No, they faced temptation which was common to people. And the same temptations are common to the people in the Corinthian church who Paul was writing to, common even to Paul himself. He faced the same temptations. And they are the same temptations which are common to us. We will face no greater or lesser temptation than the temptations that people throughout history, and particularly the people of Israel that we're focusing on today, have faced. And if it was possible for them to fall, if it was possible that the people in the Corinthian church to fall, it's possible that we will fall too. These temptations which led the people of Israel astray are the same temptations that every single person in this room right now is facing. Those temptations which are common to man. Money, the love of it, chasing after it for the sake of money itself. Possessions, wanting the next new thing idolising that, chasing after it rather than chasing after God. Power, control and sexual immorality, however that looks. And we all know how it looks because we all face that same temptation. And the truth is as well, that there is not a single person in this room who is not in danger of falling into that temptation. And in so doing, committing sin, and in so doing, leading to its natural conclusion that it draws our worship away from God, who we should be worshipping, and onto false gods. By false gods, I don't necessarily mean those who have been made up um, or, or, or deities or anything like that. I simply mean something that draws our worship that isn't God. There's probably many of us in this room who are already trapped in sin who have already given into those temptations and already begun that process. Many of us who have been led astray by these temptations. Many of us who do have other things in our life that we idolise, that we worship, things which aren't the Lord. And up to this point, maybe it's quite a bleak picture. But the good news is that Paul's not finished. Because he says this in the second half of verse 13. And God 
is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The good news is that we are not alone to face this temptation. And although the temptation we face is common to man, and man and women, people, have fallen into that temptation time and time again, we do not stand here alone. We stand here with the Lord by our side, who will strengthen us and equip us and provide us with a means of escape from that temptation. It doesn't matter if you have fallen into temptation time and time again. The next time that temptation comes upon you, believe me, the Lord, if you want him to, will stand beside you, he will strengthen you, and he will provide you with a means of escape. You are not lost, and you are not alone. You have the Lord with you. And praise God, because without him, which of us could stand? And even if you have given into temptation, which all of us have, and even if your worship has begun to be drawn away, then there's good news for us as well. Even if you are living with sin all around you, even now there is a way out for you. Because in the familiar words of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Even if we have fallen into sin, Jesus has provided a way for us to escape. He has done all that is necessary to lead us into all truth through Jesus Christ. So let's take from Numbers that which is helpful for us. As Paul points out, a warning. A warning that Paul himself reinforces a warning to stand firm with God and that when temptation seeks to trap us, we can look to God for our rescue and our salvation. And if this morning we have found ourselves trapped in sin, that God still provides a way out for us through Jesus. But be on your guard. Be on your guard and continue to stand firm and see these things as the warning they are.